and welcome to Show and Tell with Biggins. This is the podcast where I invite one of my friends to tell me about three things that have a special meaning to them. So in this podcast, I'll ask my guests to show off their most prized possessions and take me through the stories of why they mean so much. And I'm sure that whatever they bring along will strike up some unforgettable conversations. So without any further delay, it's time to welcome our show and teller, Jeremy King. Jeremy has managed, owned and created some of London's most iconic restaurants, from the Caprice back in the 80s, to the Ivy in its heydays in the 90s, to the Woolsey and now many others. Jeremy's career as a restaurateur has been long and very successful. So, Jeremy, let's have your first item. What clues can you give me on your item? Well, the choice of the items generally was very tricky. And, of course, being three items, I thought really what I should do and what my kids will expect me to do is actually choose an item reflective of each of them. But sorry, kids, no, this is, um, this is going to be, <laughs> I'm going to be narcissistic and make it about me. Um, and I'm going to do the items, I suppose the easiest way is to do them chronologically. And the, so the first one is actually about my mother. And it's something creative and something I even created for my mother. So is it something you made for Mothering Sunday? wasn't actually for Mothering Sunday. It's What it was is that my mother didn't celebrate life very much and was not, found it incapable really to express love or generosity. I remember, you know, she it, it was just her nature. I think it came from her upbringing. And had very little, she was a very capable woman. She didn't express herself emotionally. She never used to reach out and um, hug uh, my brother Pete or I. And the one thing which she did, which she, which she found, was um, pottery. And she went to pottery classes and started creating things. And I hadn't realized it at the time. I realized in retrospect that therefore I wanted to do something for her, which in the same in the same medium, because then I then we would uh, really connect. So, as a six year old at school, I and we were doing um, pottery classes and and working with clay. I made a dinosaur. <laughs> oh, how marvelous! Said dinosaur, which was um, strangely, I think, probably one of the most emotional moments for her in real terms because when I gave it to her, because never, on other times I wouldn't be able to give it. And I had certain misgivings artistically about it, even after I've done it. I regretted uh, painting on the crosses on both sides. I thought, well, yeah, why would a dinosaur have crosses? I don't, I don't know what that was about. <laughs> so it served as a memory, as about the only thing my mother really, truly appreciated that I ever gave to her. And so it became it became very precious. In fact, it was horrific. We, we moved house in May and it got damaged um, in the in the move, two parts. And I painstakingly have um, have repaired. But so I think although my mother was a difficult person, and we had, I think she's one of those people who was 
absolutely did love me. But I remember as about a 15-year-old being at a party, which she did only because my father insisted. And she was moaning about somebody who brought a child and she was moaning about children. And her friend said, oh, Molly, you always go on about how you hate children. That's not true. I, I see you with your boys. You love your boys. And she said, yes, it's true. I love my boys very much. I would die for them. But if you ask me, given the opportunity again, would I have had children? Absolutely not. <laughs> and that was uh, that was sent, said in front of me. So uh, a few weeks therapy to get that one out. But uh, it was <laughs> it wasn't too... So for me, so this sits in my, dress, my dressing room as a constant reminder of her. And I think that she was a product of her, of her upbringing, the time, the war, all sorts of, all sorts of things. And that she, she did love me, even though she found it very difficult to express herself. So it's a very personal item. And, well, it's, it's wonderful. I love it. And she treated you in a certain way. Have you treated your children in an opposite way, do you think? Well, it's an interesting question because, of course, what happens is that that children either adopt the behaviour of their parents or go completely the other yeah, the other way. Yes. So, yeah, I learned so much so much from um, from her in opposite, and I actually did something that um, helped me a great deal. That there's you may have heard about it. Something called the Hoffman process, which is um, a, a week away and, and you, you discard your identity and everything and look at yourself. It's, how, it's very difficult to explain and you're doing it in a, in a group, but it's the voyage of self-discovery. And it, what it basically says is that we all get negative love from our, par our parents one way or another and you have to cut the umbilical cord and almost prosecute them and then forgive them. And then you end up having a good relationship. And it completely transformed my relationship with my parents, particularly my father, who I don't think I respected enough until I realized what he'd gone through through in life. And so I, I found it immensely, immensely uh, eye-opening. And they play out your childhood. So you, you've managed to eschew all the negativity of childhood and move on. And this, and this is... Um, this was at a time when I did have children already and was able to, to benefit from it. What was your... Uh, when, when did your parents leave us? I mean, was it recently or...? Yeah, my father left... Um, my father died the week we were opening the Woolsey, which was um, made that quite a tough, tough week. Um, and she died... She went into a nursing home and... When did she actually die? I think about 2011. She was catatonic for a while. And um, she didn't speak. She she just looked. I would go and see her. And um, and it, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you have to talk to the person because you get no response whatsoever. They just look yes. at you. And it's it's really hard. Uh, although the only, it's the only time in my life that she ever held my hand and gripped my hand whilst I was talking to her. And I thought she was effectively brain dead. And I, I do remember one time going to see the matron coming back and I was about to sit down. I thought, oh, I don't know what to say. You know, I'm tired. So I thought, oh, I said, Molly, I've just spoken to the matron. She's 
And she's furious. Apparently you've been having parties, you've been trying to climb out over the wall and get into town, you're smoking and you're drinking and, and so on. And it has to stop. And she said, suddenly said, no. And it was the only word she, it's the only word she said for in four years that she sat in that hospital bed. It's the only time. But it shocked me, and of course I was a bit more careful. I tried all those things about, you know, if you can, if you understand what I'm saying, blink once, you know, and all that yeah, sort of yes. stuff. N none of it worked, you know, the locked-in syndrome or anything. So it was you chilling. You used the, the shocking system. The shocking, absolutely, and God, it worked. It's a... I think that is absolutely wonderful. I don't know how we cope with our parents, you know. I mean, it's they're extraordinary, and. Yeah. Uh, I've never wanted to have children. I've got lots of godchildren and I've got lots of uh, family friends with children, but I just, I don't think I'd be a good father at all. I mean, I, I love children, but I mean, I don't, there's something about it which, uh, I don't know, I think people are very brave who, who marry and have children. I think they are, because responsibility is huge. Well, and it's a sense, a lot of, for a lot of people, there's a sense of obligation to do it. You know, I'm always yes. terribly impressed yeah. by people who make that choice not to have children. And I actually happen to think you'd be a really, really good father, as long as you had a whole battalion of nannies to do all the oh, general stuff. I without think a question. I'd have to have <laughs> staff coming out of my ears. I mean, I would have nannies, I would have cooks, I'd have uh, housekeepers. I'd have to have so many people helping me. But I mean, yes, I think I would, because I do love children. I mean, I really do. Yeah, uh, what no, is your I mean, second? Good with him. Well, my second is, is actually... Um, involves a, uh, a period in my life which was extraordinarily rich and redolent of so many so many things and I learned so much about myself and somebody else and that person was a was notionally is thought of as being a very very selfish person and what it is is a diary of the time I spent with them and they taught me the difference between good selfish and bad selfish, which was a very interesting journey. And the person was Lucian Freud. And so my second, my second object is a diary. And in fact, it's the first of many diaries. <clears throat> because in 2006, um, I was asked by Lucian to sit for him for a portrait. And then I went on to do a, um, an etching. And it took he worked very slowly. It took several years to do. And for, I think for the portrait, it was about three years. And I would go once or twice a week um, for a full morning. It was a bit like going to therapy, really. Um, and the, it was incredibly life-enriching because, as I said, I not only found out a lot about him, but I found out a lot about myself in, in that situation. And... The reason it's particularly in my mind at the moment is that it's this little pile of diaries has been sitting there, and in the move um, th that I mentioned in May, I was looking at these diaries and I thought, I haven't read them since 2008 or whatever. Or in fact, I don't think I ever actually read them after I'd written them, um, it was, it, which is a strange thing. And of course, with diaries, you never know quite who, who you're writing the diary for. Are you writing for yourself yes. or you're writing for an audience? Are you writing for your yeah. children? Or And so not long ago, I went back and started looking at it. And I was fascinated because it 
told told in great detail of the of the relationship with him and progress with the painting etc but it also put it into context of what was going on in my life what I was feeling uh, certain situations it wasn't long after I I'd uh, divorced and so I started uh, transcribing uh, recently and it's it's I realized just how valuable to to me it is and I I don't know about you whether you have diaries from from when you were younger or or maybe you, you keep a contemporary diary, but it's fascinating to see how we've how our thoughts have developed or what we were feeling at the time. Yeah, I used to I used to have a file effects. Uh, do you remember those mm. good old days? Yeah. And then of course they computers came along and I stopped doing it, which I regret. Uh, but I still have uh, quite a few of those Filofaxes, you know. Uh, I bet they're uh, fun. Uh, uh, yeah, they are fun. I mean, it, you know, I I I didn't do long sort of writings i would i would do what i'd done highlighting things that brought back the memories uh but do you think you might publish these i don't know i think i think maybe within the within the greater context i i i've had a lot of offers to write books etc and and i worry a bit about the the restaurateur autobiography because ultimately and I can say this with authority in that I've got a whole collection of restaurateur autobiographies. They're the most boring, <laughs> dull, <laughs> repetitious things you could ever come across. I mean, there's one I remember, well, Leone, Leone from Quo Vadis, who, who actually, the, the, the clue is in the title. He said, I shall die on the carpet. You know, you go, what? This notion that he'd be wandering out with a plate of pasta and drop dead on the... Or, you know, they're all, it was my great honour to serve the Begum Aga Khan, you know, and all that sort of thing. So, oh, it's boring. Um, but, you know, I, I, I wouldn't mind at some point doing a book which I, if somehow I can pass on what I've learnt, you know, one of those yeah. books that this much yeah. I know, um, and that may be interspersed with uh, the, the period with, with Lucy and I. I I'll see. Um, I think the funny thing about it is my quasi um, my my quasi son-in-law uh, Margot, my second daughter's uh, partner, is Josh O'Connor, the actor. And um, I don't oh, know right, if you yes. know Josh, who's, yes, who's I playing know, Prince yes. Charles in the Crown and so on. Yes, he's and very he's good. an absolute absolute spitting image of Lucian and he'd make the perfect he'd make the perfect uh, Lucian yeah, so, he oh, would actually he would yeah. Lucian Freud is one of my f I'm a great collector of art have you been to my house I haven't no no well I've, we've got art everywhere you must come I'd like you to come with your yeah, now wife and uh, it's uh, I, I, I've loved art ever since I, I've been collecting it for 50 years and I remember uh, one of my favourite artists is Lucian and I used to go to the uh, the Woolsey and I would sit on the side there. And of course, he had that table in the corner of the horseshoe. Mm. And I remember he we would smile and, you know, nod at, that we'd seen. And I think I said to you one day, do you think I could speak to him? And he said, well, let me tell you a story. He said, uh, one day someone did go up to speak to him and he threw the whole bread basket at him. <laughs> yes, that's and right. so I, that is, you take your, but anyway, so I never did that. But one day he left. 
I was quite a long time in the Woolsey, sitting there with friends, and he came over and he said, how nice to see you, Christopher. And that made my life. I mean, that Lucian Freud, and I really would have loved it if, he'd, if I had to be painted by him. I mean, it was me, Mars. Have you, have you still got your painting? Obviously you have. No, I, I, I couldn't afford it. Um, it was... Uh... Didn't he give it to you? No, no. And <laughs> his uh, his dealer would have killed me, Bill Aquavella in, in New York. No, that it came a point, it was rather weird, is that I got a call from David Dawson, his assistant, and he said, can you come at the weekend? It was a bank holiday weekend. And <clears throat> we're going to have a sitting to finish the painting. And I said, well, we've already had about seven sittings to finish the painting because it was, you know, there's always something else to do. Yeah. He said, no, no, generally, because... It's got to go to Basel Art Fair next week. And in the end, it was finished, framed the next day, transported the day after that, and then sold the day the next day. And then into the restaurant, I walk uh, one day, and there's already a group of people there, art world people, and they're all turning around and looking at me. And I go, <laughs> what's, what's, going, what's going on here and they were following me around so I, naturally I didn't go to the table because you, you never you, you never do let let's see what's happening here eventually I arrive at the table and this woman who I, I knew a bit her name is <clears throat> pardon me is Frances Bose um, she looked up and she said I just bought you <laughs> how do you mean how and marvellous said, uh, Basel outfit. I think what makes you you know how much I love you you know how much I love your restaurants and I think you're the classiest restaurateur in London uh, and in fact I would probably go as far as to say in the world I mean I just think you're amazing and Thank one of the you. stories I want to tell before we go to a break is I remember uh, Lucian died and the day that he died, I was in the Woolsey and the table that he sat at, you put a black cloth on and you put a candle and no one sat there. And I thought that was the classiest thing I'd ever, ever seen. And it, what a tribute to that man. And, you know, and it, it meant so much in that particular on that particular day. And I, I, and I was um, and I was very grateful to those um, the the general manager at the Woolsey, who was the catalyst, what are we going to, what are we going to do? Because, you know, I, I was bereft anyway, and he sort of brought me to, to my senses and, and we, and we did that. And, and of course it, it is my feeling that you don't broadcast your grief or anything like that. But, and, and in fact, of course, the only people who understand what the hell was going on, unless they asked were people like yourself who went, who immediately got the significance um, of course, then afterwards, Michael Winner had heard about that and, and said, when I die, will you do the same? And I said, absolutely, <laughs> ab absolutely not. And uh, he said, why not? I'm just as important. I said, no, you're not. I said, you're, if you come into the restaurant six nights a week and you're the world, <clears throat> and probably one of the world's most, most accomplished artists, then uh, we'll do something. But the same time, and then turn and... and I spoke to Antonia Fraser. I don't think she'd mind me being indiscreet. She said, oh, I do hope you, um, yeah. you cover my table with a red cloth <laughs> said, as I descend to hell. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Thank you, Jay. We're going to take a break and we're back in two minutes.
Welcome back. And now it's my turn to show you my, or to tell you about my first item. Now, my first item is, um, uh, how should I describe it? It's a, a, a box with nothing in it. And it was made by a very dear friend of mine whose son, or one of her sons, is the uh, managing director, Anna Lord, and uh, very instrumental in creating a yellow vehicle which we see every day of our lives. Do you hear, does that help you at all? Hmm, <laughs> the yellow vehicle that we see every day of our lives. Yeah. Doing the roads, on the roads. Uh, obviously a vehicle would be on the road, but I mean, this, this helps the roads. It helps building, building a future for all of us. Well, I mean, there's there's plenty of uh, heavy machinery on the road in in yellow. But, yes. Um, it's, uh, so, which particular one would you think? Probably a JCB or something like that. But perfect. Um, per yes, yeah. it is a JCB. So uh, it's right. Anthony Bamford's mother. Uh, and Anthony, Anthony Banford's mother was a, a wonderful woman called Meggie, who I met and was spent a lot of time with uh, in the early days. And she made these boxes. I'm going to show it to you now, which is like that. Can oh, you see? Nice. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, a box, uh, a little like a sort of thing, you a puff. Uh, you know, you, you, it's like you could put your feet on it somehow. It's got a ribbon on the top. Mm -hmm. and But if you open it, it's solid. There's nothing inside the box. There's a base, and then there's the, uh, the uh, top. And I, she wrote in it for me, Meggie, this is a very special gift that you can never see. The reason it is so special, it is just for you from me. Whenever you feel lonely or even feel blue... You only have to hold this gift and know I think of you. You can never unwrap it. Please leave the, other, the covers on. You hold the box close to your heart and it is filled with love inside. Oh, how wonderful. That's really marvellous. It's really, it? really sweet. And she was such a wonderful woman. And of course, Anthony Bamford and, and uh, Carol are an extraordinary couple. Now, Jeremy, it's time for your last uh, object. What clues have you got? Maybe I wasn't looking at this enough earlier on when I ran a little bit late. And it's something that I was talking to Paul Smith um, recently, and he's something which he used to sell, I think, I might have the figures wrong, something like 70,000 a year. But now, because of the advent of telephones, he only sells about 10,000 a year. Oh, diaries? Oh, watches. Ah, watch. watch. How fascinating. Well, of course, that's true. Very few people, everyone now looks at their mobile, don't they? To see what yeah. the time is. And so the sales of watches have collapsed, other than at the luxury end, of course, that you, and you, we all see those adverts, that, is that the luxury watches, which of course are, are ostentatious, often ostentatious shows of wealth, yeah. they're the ones which are thriving. Um, but the day-to-day -day watch, no, if you look around, very few millennials are actually sporting a watch at all. I think that's very true. And I, I love it. 
I love a watch because apart from my wedding ring and to a degree my cufflinks, it's, my, it's the only adornment that I have. And I have quite a few. And I happen to like um, Breitling and um, this, this object, in fact Breitling, I have continued to, to get Breitlings through my life and, and uh, I love the company and they're very, they're very good people there. But this particular one um, brings us more up to date. And, is, and as I said, I was going chronological. This takes us back to, I think, about 2011, 2012. And asking my children's uh, forgiveness for not mentioning them, I am going to mention Lauren, who is my second wife. And we met in New York and she decided she wanted to buy me a watch and managed to, I think we were at Barney's or something, looking at their second-hand watches. And she's saying just casually, oh, you know, what sort of watch, watches do you like? I like this one and so on and so forth. And uh, I pointed out this, what's called a Breitling Top Time. It's a black-faced watch, which surprised me, with... Um, with with uh, inner faces in it in itself, it's a chronometer and and so on. But it was for me, it was just the perfect size, the perfect um, authority. It was understated, but at, at the same time, perhaps eye eye catching, like all jewelry. And then, of course, without knowing it, then she tracked that that one wasn't uh, any longer available, so she tracked it down, and so. I received this gift, which has, is inscribed on the back, um, For My King, and from Lauren. So, <laughs> Lovely. And I do, I do like objects. I wear this virtually every day, and, and it's a very timely uh, reminder of that period and, of course, the subsequent years uh, since I met Lauren and got married. And this was around the time when... We were in a slightly ill-fated um, uh, business relationship uh, opening the Monkey Bar in New York. And it was, despite the fact that it was really, really difficult um, in so many ways, I think it was, it was also really quite important for me to actually take me out of my comfort zone and take me out of London and, and spend some time in a different culture, etc. And I think... I wish that for everybody, and I'm I'm very happy that Margot, uh, my daughter, is actually living in New York, has done for a, a year or so, and uh, so it this this is my more contemporary memory. Do you have? Are you a sort of man who has lots of watches, and you choose them? You sort of go to a a drawer, and there they all are, sort of fifty or sixty. Yeah, and I not that many. I. Um, I have a, so many suits, of course, which is always <laughs> yes. a, a daily dilemma. As Although I'm not sure if it was Lauren or somebody else who said, yeah, you, you have this terrible dilemma whether to wear a grey or a black one. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, they are all different subtleties of grey. Um, I have got quite a, I've got quite a few um, watches, which are really about it. Um, occasion and if it's a casual version of a Breitling or if it's a more formal um, or if it's a dress watch um, or indeed if it's a watch to wear with tweeds or so on and so yes. forth it's my it's, it's that one eccentricity is cufflinks watches and ties um, which I think in 
And, and of course, handkerchiefs as well. I, I do like a pocket handkerchief. So, uh, do you get up fifteen I, minutes earlier than you would normally to choose all the things you're going to accessorise your black and grey suits with? No, I, I, I don't. In fact, I'm very, very, a very early riser. But I, it's a fair question because <laughs> I, um, I suddenly realised that. The amount of time I left myself to shower and be ready during during the lockdown when I was just putting on casual clothes is considerably different. And it could well be the 15 minutes that you mentioned that uh, trying to work out how, how to do it. Absolutely. I sometimes do think I do envy some the people who actually have the just have 30 of the exactly the same suits and yeah. 30 of exactly the same shirt, shirts and maybe the same tie. Very dull, though. Very, very it's dull. dull. It's dull, though, yeah. but God, it, it makes... Yeah. I know. I I I, I, uh, I I used to. Wear, I had. I think at one particular point, I had three hundred pairs of glasses, all different colours, and yeah. I I used to go out with, and I I stopped wearing them or, or buying them because I invariably would be in the car re- and realise I clashed. My colour of my glasses clashed with everything I was wearing, so I looked as <laughs> a real fashion idiot. But you know, I've I've got I've got a, what have I got now? I think I got like twenty twenty five pairs of glasses. Oh right. Right, so you really cut back. Yeah, oh, really, it was ridiculous. I gave them to charity in the end. It was wonderful. I was going to ask you what you did with them because, you know, I'm a little bit of a hoarder myself. You know, I move on in life quite quickly. I, I yeah. If I leave, you know, and I walked out of the door of the Ivy on that on the last uh, evening, it was, I, you know, I'm incredibly obsessed and committed when it's my responsibility. The second it's not my responsibility, I have no pangs of regret or wistful or, you know, people say, oh, you're going to miss it terribly. I said, no, I won't. I just move on. I, I, do, the, I do the next thing. I think it's a defense mechanism in, in some ways. Um, and, but there's certain objects I do find it difficult to let go of. And um, I was talking to a friend recently whose wife... Uh, was doing a clear out and found his collection of 60s and 70s uh, uh, vinyl LPs in the loft and threw them away. Oh, um, no. And, you know, this is like 200 of them. And oh, thought, well, my they're, goodness. They're no use anymore. And it, it, was, it was like throwing away memories. And, and I think memories, you know, like your box or anything, memories yes. are so, so important. They really are. So, Jeremy, it's been uh, really wonderful talking to you. You're an old friend of mine, and I, I can't wait to get back to the, the Woolsey, Delaunay, uh, the Colbert, every, every restaurant. Uh, the, you know, it's going to be fantastic. And I, I, you know how much I love your restaurants. They're fantastic, and you are the best. Thank you. Thank no, you, Chris. No, you're, I, you're more than generous. Well, no, I mean that. Uh, and uh, let's, let's just think about your items again. Uh, I, I think my favourite is your dinosaur that you made for your mother. Hmm. I think that is fantastic. And I, I think that I can almost see her. She probably had a tear in her eye, I suspect. Uh, I, th- I think so. And uh, it, it, was, it was unusual for her to show any emotion. So uh, it meant a lot to her. Yes, no, I, I, I'm sure it did. And I can see it in her in her boudoir, you know, sitting there on the, you know, when she looked at it every day. <laughs> I, I think that's yeah. wonderful. And uh, the diary 
is I, I think it's sad we don't use diaries as much as we, people used to. I think they were a wonderful chronicle of what was happening around us at that particular time. And then what was the last item? The watch. Oh, the watch, yeah. of course. Well, it's interesting because I, I only have one watch and that is a, a gold, solid gold Cartier, which I love and I lusted after. I had a silver mm. and gold one and then someone's, uh, an antique uh, dealer, sold me this gold watch at a very good price. Well, thank you very much for your time today and I'm so pleased you managed to fit us in <laughs> and uh, I look forward to seeing you and I send you as always all my love. Thank you and let me know if I can help in any way and it's, it's been fun Chris, it's always good to see you and I miss you. Ah, so good. Thank you. Thank you very much Jeremy. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Show and Tell podcast. If you want to hear more conversations like this one make sure you follow Show and Tell with Biggins on the podcast provider of your choice. And if you'd be so kind as to tell your friends about the podcast, I'd be ever so grateful. You can also follow us on social media. We're at Biggins Podcast. Goodbye. Goodbye.